The following audio content is a talk given at the Inn, a college ministry of University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, theinnseattle.org. We invite you to join us each Tuesday at 9 p.m. on the corner of 16th and 47th in Seattle's U District. So, my doppelganger, in part. Now, this is a question that, for me, J.K. Rowling ruined this question for me when the popular Harry Potter book series got turned into movies. Now, I don't know if all dark-haired, you know, kind of mildly scrawny males with circular glasses all have the same experience that I did, but it has turned into one of these things where I would be constantly given this backhanded compliment of, oh, church, dude, you're so cute, you're so cute, I love those glasses, you look just like Harry Potter. And I'm like, thanks, thanks. I love being compared to a prepubescent adolescent. Thank you very much. It really came to a head about this time, several years ago. Uh, I was actually at a Halloween party. Okay, but it wasn't, it wasn't a costume party. We're hanging out, you know, just being adults and, and doing our thing. And, and these kids were, were coming to the door and we were handing out, uh, you know, uh, trick or treats. And so, you know, doorbell rings. I go to the door enthusiastically. I mean, I, you know, I'm down with trick or treaters or whatever. So I, I go to the door, and, and before me is this, you know, this witch, okay? And, she's, and before she even says trick or treat, she just goes, wow, you're an awesome Harry Potter, okay? <laughs> much, to, much to the chagrin of my normally clothed self, I was not in costume, and much to the delight of my friends uh, that were there that did not let me live that down the rest of the evening or ever, <laughs> for that matter. So I say this to say that, that it's probably not because of, you know, both mine and HP's manly physiques that we are likened to each other, but rather because of our glasses. There's something about these round glasses that, that I get all of these, I get all this crap about having the HP lookalike. Now, to be fair, lest I complain too much about this, I did actually try to change the style of my glasses several years ago and went with more of the cool rectangular ones, but they just happened to be Nike, and then people gave me crap about selling out to the man, and that disturbed me more than being likened to HP. <laughs> but what I want us to, to get at in sharing all this is that I need these glasses to see. They help bring everything into focus for me. Things that, that right now are blurry as I take them off become clear the moment that I put these on. And we all, whether we wear them on our face like I do, we all have a set of lenses that we look at the world through. These lenses that are shaped by experiences, by family, by friends, teachers, the internet, TV shows, movies, perhaps for some of you even church. These are lenses that we call our worldview. And so as we continue tonight in our journey through Revelation, I want to suggest that what we have over the next couple of weeks, starting tonight, is really an update to the prescription of our worldview. That is to have some lenses that give us the ability to see past the things that are immediately recognizable to us and to help us see a God who is worthy to be worshipped. John is giving us a new set of lenses. 
Now, as you've heard, uh, those of you who've been with us for these first few weeks of the quarter, you have heard this encouragement to avoid compromise, to be committed to one's first love, even when the going gets tough. We've heard the encouragement to listen and, and to use our imagination and to look and look and look again. 47 times in the book of Revelation, John says, look. And it is that task that we continue on tonight in the words that our band led us in as we turn our eyes uh, upon Jesus. As we continue that task, let me pray for us as we continue. Gracious God, give us the eyes to see, the ears to hear, Lord, that we might be sensitive to your Spirit's leading as we gather tonight. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we have just finished these seven letters to the seven churches. And keep in mind, as Janie pointed out last week, that this number seven is this this number of, of completion. And so what we have here in those seven letters in chapters 2 and 3 in Revelation is this understanding of a message that, that was given to seven specific churches. But this number seven helps us know that it is a message to the church universal, to the church uh, everywhere, to the church for all time. And so we know that it is a message to us as well. But those specific churches were in an intense moment of persecution by the Roman Empire. Essentially, there was not a lot in that first century, not a lot for those first century Christians that was looking super positive for them. It was a tough, tough time in their own existence. They were wondering around, looking around wondering, are we going to die? What's going on here? Nothing seems to, to go our way. Is God in charge? Is God good? Does God care? Likely some of the questions that were going on in the heads of those that, those Christians that were living in the first century. Now, while we might not face the exact same type of persecution that those folks would, we do have similar questions and we do see a similar type of chaos in the world, don't we? A chaos that has us asking things like, why, why do we even need to do something where we're trying to raise money to give clean drinking water to people? There's people in this world that don't have water to drink. How is it possible that young girls could be minimized into being sex slaves in a contemporary culture? How is it that we still hear about genocide? How is it that we still find ourselves wondering, is God in charge? Is God good? With the lenses that we would normally use as we look at the world, there seem to be a lot more questions than answers. So John wants to give us this new set of lenses as we begin chapter 4. And as we read this, I invite you to see what John saw, to use your imagination. Now, this is going to get a little bit crazy. And that's why our imagination is required. So feel free to follow along. We'll have the words up on the screen. But also feel free to just close your eyes as you hear this and just try and picture what's going on in your head as we try to see 
what John saw. I'm going to have Kelly Toma read the, the text for us. After this, I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must first take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it, and the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby, a rainbow that shone like an emerald encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne were twenty-four other thrones, and seating on them were twenty-four elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings, and pearls of thunder. Before the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. Also before the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. In the center, around the throne, were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was, a, was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third had the face of like a man. The fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under its wings. Day and night, they never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. Okay, crazy. Crazy, crazy. Although I couldn't help but notice once again the, the rainbow that shone around in an emerald circle like the phone. It's a double rainbow all the way. Double rainbow, oh my God. I love Yosemite Bear. Can't get enough, really. Okay, so this is one of these, this is one of the places, I believe, where people stop reading Revelation because the imagery becomes just too overwhelming and it's too far outside of our ability to comprehend, especially without imagination. I mean, when you hear about these four living creatures covered with eyes and with, with wings, it's, it's easy to be intimidated by this. I did a, an internet search to, to just see what were some of the imaginative things that people came up with, uh, for these things. And, you know, for example, you see that thing on the left, the bird with the eyes in front and in back. If that's something that I run into when I'm on a hike here in the Cascades, I'm probably dropping something out of myself that I'm not going to really enjoy carrying out. You know what I'm saying? Okay? You come across some beast like that, and it's going to get the heart pumping, uh, among other things, perhaps. Okay? And then, and then the, the other image uh, that I got was the next one that my son uh, likes to play with Legos as well, uh, but he is yet to conceive of the Revelation 4 um, action scene here. Um, perhaps because he's two, <laughs> but uh, certainly when I played with Legos, I never did that one either. But I get why people give up on Revelation. If this wasn't in the Bible, this is the type of literature that sounds like something out of, out of Dungeon, Dungeons and Dragons or, or Wizards of the Coast or something like that. You think that this is, you think this stuff is weird, right? We'll come back in the next couple weeks because 
Friends, you ain't seen nothing yet. It gets even weirder from here. Thankfully, Janie's going to take on next week and then Void the week after that. So come and hear what they have to say because I'm going to really enjoy it. But let's stay with this for a second. Let's see if we might be able to use our imaginations and simplify this a little bit. Okay, so I want to share a few brief reflections with you that I think, uh, b- before I share with you what I think this means for us individually and as a community. So, what I want to do is break this down into what I might call the four of Revelation 4. Okay, now there's probably more than this, but there's really four images within this big image that I want to unpack for us tonight. Okay, first is, is this image of the door. And the first verse that we heard or saw says, After this I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in, in heaven. And that's what I want to talk about, this door. This door that is open. When I'm walking home, after a day of work, I live just down, down the road here. Um, I might be able to, to hear some things uh, coming from my door as I get close. But in order for me to tell if, if the front door of my house is open, I have to pretty much be right out in front of it before I recognize that that door is, in fact, open. And usually it's at that point that I get the best greeting that anybody could ever receive. My little two-year-old redhead comes out going, Daddy, home! Daddy, home! Coat off. (laughs) That's the first thing he does. Take that coat off. He wants me to be home. But it takes me, it, it requires proximity for me to note that that door is open. I have to be close To see that the door is open. John sees an open door. And he sees this open door in heaven. And what it tells us is that John is seeing this door that communicates heaven is near. Heaven is close. Heaven is at hand. I can see an open door. Heaven is not something that is far away and intangible. It's right here. Heaven is here. And it is right in front of us. This is the same John having this vision that communicated to us that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now, we're not going to unpack this idea of heaven here tonight. We're going to do that later in the series. But what I want you to catch is is that this whole idea of heaven is something that is very close to us. Not merely something that is far away that happens once we die. Heaven is near. The second image that we have is this image of a throne. 4-3, the one who sat there had the appearance of ruby, of jasper and ruby, and a rainbow shone like an emerald circle around the throne. This throne is something that tells us that there is, it is a symbol of, of power, of authority, of worthiness. And even better, John goes on to tell us, someone is sitting on that throne. Remember the the chaos that those churches, those seven letters experienced. And remember the chaos of the questions that we were addressing earlier. 
John is helping us see that heaven is near and I can see a throne and someone is sitting on that throne who rules and reigns. As one of the interns who was on staff here when I was a student used to say, his name was Matthew Young, this shows us a vision of a God who is large and in charge. Isn't that one of the desires of our hearts? To have one who is large and in charge and who can take disorder and bring order into it. Who can take chaos and bring peace. When I was thinking about this, I thought of the tragedies around September 11th, 2001. Now, following those great tragedies, as some of you may remember, President Bush's approval rating reached an all-time high and, in fact, was one of the highest presidential approval ratings that any U.S. president has ever received. You see, people were looking for some order in that time of great chaos, and the president provided it with a swift and decisive response. Of course, firefighters and policemen became instant heroes for the order that they provided in the same chaos of that great tragedy. I actually lament that the church missed an opportunity within that tragedy. John's vision reminds us that there is someone who brings order to our chaotic world. Someone who is large and in charge. John says, I see a throne, a symbol of power and authority and worthiness. And even better news is, I see someone on that throne. The scripture goes on to tell us that before that throne is a sea of glass, clear as crystal. Friends, the storm on the water has been calmed. And any of you that have seen Lake Washington at about 6 a.m. on that perfect June day know how calm it is. John tells us that the one on the throne has calmed it all, has brought order to the chaos. John says, look, a throne and someone on it. Order out of chaos, comfort out of pain. Hope out of despair. Third, surrounding that throne are 24 elders. Now, this one falls into the category. We're told these elders are, of course, uh, wearing white robes and, and, and crowns, and they're sitting in thrones. And thus, this lands in this category of what does it mean? What does it mean? Now, like the seven letters to the seven churches, this is is largely understood to be a symbol of the church. And the 24 comes from the 12 tribes of Israel plus 12, the 12 disciples, the, the 12 apostles. Okay, so one of the things that you have to keep in mind is you encounter all of these numbers in Revelation and a lot of the imagery in Revelation is that there's nothing new in this book. It all comes out of things that are in the previous 65 books of the Bible. So the, this whole idea of 12 tribes is nothing new. This whole idea of 12 disciples, nothing new. And thus, we have this bigger picture of, of who the church is. What does it mean, these 24 elders? It means that the church 
is oriented around the one that sits in the throne on the center. To me, that's the most compelling part of that whole thing, is how the church surrounds this throne and what is at the very center of what they encircle. It is this throne with the one on it that we desire. Finally, we come to the four living creatures, each with different heads, and each with wings and eyes that seem to be all over. Now, this, of course, is a spectacular and bewildering image. And if you are confused by it, you are in good company. We know that it it confused even those that originally received this letter in the first century as well. A couple things to talk about here. Why four? Why four beasts? Well, four, like what we've talked about with seven and twelve, four is is a number of completion in the natural order, in the created order. To, to uh, illustrate that, I would say north, south, east, and west. This, this number four, this symbol of four as, as symbolizing a natural completion that is captured by those beasts. Okay, so that's what four means. Why the eyes? Why the eyes? Dan Matei, one of the guys on the In Speaking team, this group that helps me prepare these messages each week, was spooked by this whole idea of all these eyes, as if by a spider that would have eyes all over it. Okay, Now, less than, than Dan was spooked by the beast, he was spooked by this whole idea of the eyes all over the beast. Now, I think it's a good question. Another member of our in-speaking team, Emily Van Oss, suggested this explanation that I thought was very compelling. She said, the eyes on the front and back could demonstrate how they have seen past, present, and future. This is why they are able to praise God. They have firsthand witnessed the Almighty with these eyes who are able to see back who was, see the the present who is, and see the future who is to come. I'm drawn to this quote because it's consistent with what I understand these four creatures to be doing. And that is they are worshiping. All of the created order is worshiping. They join in with these churches that are worshiping. And then these four symbols are saying, we're worshiping too. In a fantastic way, with all these eyes that see back to the past, that see into the present, that see the future, that they're saying, we are worshiping the one who sits on this throne because he is the Almighty. This one is worthy to receive glory and honor and praise. It is the symbol of life as worship. So what does John see? What does John see in chapter 4? He sees a door in heaven, a door that is near, and one sitting on the throne in the center of the church, and one who is worshipped. So what? What does this mean for us? What do, we, what do we do with these fantastic images even now? It means for us that we need to look through 
an updated prescription. An updated prescription that sees, that helps us see past the pain, the chaos and disorder of our world to help us see a God that is worthy to be worshipped. We need to see through a new prescription. What are you seeing? What are you seeing? If you close your eyes and imagine a throne, the throne of your life, what is on that throne? In the center of your life. Let me, let me take a guess at what that might be. The thing that often sits on the throne of our lives. Is that thing that consumes your thoughts. Perhaps it's your grades. A major. A job. An ex-boyfriend. A future girlfriend. Your phone. What is the thing that consumes your thoughts, that that consumes you? That's the thing that's on your throne. The thing that is on your throne is that thing that you would do anything for. That you would give up anything for. Perhaps the thing on your throne is the thing that you would do anything to have it removed. The things you obsess over are the things on your throne. You see, whatever it is on that throne is what you worship. Now, worship is not just what we do when we gather here to sing songs and be in community with each other and and hear, hear some clown like myself get up and speak. Worship is what we do with our lives. Worship is that giving up everything. And what John wants us to see is that the chaos that we first see in our world, those things that might seem most obvious to us, are perhaps not exactly what they seem to be because there is one who is large and in charge, and who sits on the throne. And so, friends, our challenge is to have a prescription that allows us to see and trust that there is one on that throne, that throne that is so near, that transcends what we can immediately see. So we seek to live our lives as people that see our role as citizens of a kingdom ruled by that king on the throne. Worshiping God with our lives means living a life consumed by love. Investing our entire being, like those four creatures, investing ourselves into building up of this God's kingdom. A kingdom that is ruled by freedom and redemption. So what's on your throne? What's on your throne? Let us be people who look and see the one who is worthy. To see the one Lord and God 
who is worthy to receive glory and honor and power. For this God created all things. And because of this God on that throne, we have life. Let us pray. Lord, update our prescription. Give us lenses that we might see that you are large and in charge in the chaos of our lives. Uh, Lord, help us see you in all things. Help us see and know and experience that you are near. Lord, we we long to know you. Help us to see you and hear your voice. In Jesus' name, amen.